Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 168, The Welsh Naval Experience. Now, I have to preface this entire episode by saying I won't be mentioning coracles that much. And I realize for some people that's going to be like, well, but that's a Welsh boat. Like, why would you mention it? We're going to get to it later. This is more about the military side of, of the Welsh uh, sea experience. So just FYI. Throughout its history, Wales has been surrounded on three sides, major water sources. To the north and west is the Irish Sea, a turbulent waterway that has seen invasions arrive from ancient to early modern periods. To the south lies the Bristol Channel, a path of water where England and Wales have faced off for over a thousand years. This channel was a major route for shipping leaving the shores of Britain, just like those which sail west from Liverpool, just to the north and east of Wales, sending ships as famous as the Titanic and as unknown as sailing and fishing vessels that have traveled the area from ancient times to this day. For many in Wales, the sea has been a source of food, stories, fascination, and mystery, as it is for anyone who lives near one. In North Wales, the fishermen sought livings fishing off the coast of Anglesey and the Clean Peninsula down the coast of Cardigan Bay. My own ancestors were sailors and fishermen throughout the 1800s, and likely beyond that. While rivers like the Dee were navigated for travel from one end to almost the other, places like Cardith, where the rivers and the bay continue to host sailors navigating the waters, it is an important port city. Despite the myths surrounding Madoc Ap Owen and his supposed mythological discovery of America, there is little talk in history about Welsh sailors during the periods we have covered on the podcast so far. Many of the famous captains and explorers to this point definitely came from countries less consumed with survival as the Welsh were for much of their history. Yet, before coal, before tin, there was always the sea. When the first English attempts were made to go west of Ireland for the first time, Welshmen were key parts of the crew and command structure. In 1480, Thomas Lloyd captained the ship making some of these attempts. In Cabot's successful voyages, it was skippered by another Welshman, Edward Griffiths. In the Neolithic and Bronze Age periods, shipping around Cardigan Bay was common enough that some of the stones for Stonehenge arrived first by boat from Wales. As the Bronze Age grew in Britain and tin supplies began to be mined, the middle of Welsh coasts were then areas of gathering and of shipping. Items were sent as far south as Cornwall and beyond. Archaeological evidence for 
what these ships, barges, and boats appeared to look like or how they were used is scant at best, even if there are some obvious evidences nonetheless, i.e. the fact that the shipping of the Welsh bluestones definitely had to have been done by boat, at least for part of the trip. The first historical records of Welsh naval tradition we have is from the Roman period. During this 350 years of domination of Britannia, the Romans created a network of sailing fleets to patrol and provide for the possessions in Wales and beyond. Trade, even today, is largely done by the oceans that cover the earth, so having the ability to ship tin and clay and so many other useful items to the rest of Europe while importing wine and other conveniences of Roman living must have been important for the men manning outposts and the farmers and landowners who craved Roman life, as well as forts being raised across the coast of Wales like Cardiff, Chester, Neath, and Carnarvon, amongst many, many others. There were built, obviously, with one eye on the sea. Pirates and invaders from Ireland came by sea, so having a mobile navy, including the Roman workhorse, the trireme, would be critical in dealing with issues arising via the Irish Sea and beyond, of course, on the western halves of Britain, so thus were the eastern halves of Britain covered by these forts. And of course, we know about the Saxon shore, the major final infrastructure project to try and protect the shores of Britain from pirates and invaders coming from the rest of Europe. As most of the Romans withdrew and the succeeding kingdoms, fiefdoms, and petty kingdoms arose, there they had little ability to maintain the Roman forts, outposts, and watchtowers. This meant that attacks from the sea increased as the wealthier and easier to reach eastern areas of England fell under the control of others. There were still some sorts of naval protection post the Roman Empire, as there are semi-mythic stories of kings' navies taking on pirates who would become the Saxons and the Picts in later history. This is likely only carried on for a short time, if the timeline makes sense, as Saxon settlements and Pict aggression coincided into England throughout the 5th century, until there was only a small pocket of people who considered themselves Britons left in southern Scotland, Wales, and in Cornwall. Yet, Still, trade continued by sea amongst these various places, from Altclut to Carnarvon to Tintagel in the south. Ye Gadothin, one of the earliest sources, mentioned troops from all over Britain heeding the call to fight for them. And likely, if they did, they must have moved mostly by ship up the coast. Of course, this is a slightly mythological poem, so there's no guarantee any of that happened. And there is some speculation that really the all-around was really northern England and southern Scotland. The Irish Sea was still a sea of commerce, however, as the Celts, both Irish and Welsh, continued to trade and invade one another throughout the period. Intermarriages were common, cultural exchanges were the norm, and as they all dealt with the arrival of the Saxons and their heptarchy of kingdoms. The arrival of the Northmen from Sweden, Norway, and Denmark changed the face of sea travel in Wales and how it responded to mobilize against this effective threat on their waterways. Unlike England, which could not 
transverse with ease in Wales because of the natural barriers of mountains at the core, they could still wreck many coastal communities and cut them off from outside as they invaded easier places. Up and down the coast of Wales from the 10th century, every area along that coast would feel the wrath of these warriors. If they could not or would not pay them off, they would pay the price in other ways, feeding into different kinds of trade. Slaves, of course, fed the Vikings as much as the gold and the crops they took. Like their English counterparts, the inability to deal with the threat put a strain on the Welsh kings, who then appealed to the Saxons for help, and the English kings never really forgot the idea that they were now the overlords of all of Britain because of this defense. Before the arrival of the Normans, after the Vikings had settled in Ireland and northern Scotland and other places in and around the British Isles, they would then be hired quite often to help man Welsh navies to protect them from various kingdoms and other Norsemen. Hulep Edwin, for example, king of Doithbarth, along with Griffith ap Hrydric, led a campaign of 36 Irish Viking longships along the Bristol Channel to bring the kingdom of Morganwy under his sway and, of course, rain terror upon both Welsh and English towns in and around that area. Griffith ap Llewellyn, on the other hand, had to build a fleet of his own at Ruthland to carry out activities along the coast. He used longships and Irish fleets to help him carry out the domination and subjugation of Wales under his kingship and to terrorize English border towns well before he was eventually defeated by Harold Godwinson. The English naval power was superior as well as their armies, and Griffith did not last long against the face of the Earl and the power of the proper English military. For much of the Norman conquest and Plantagenet subjugation, Wales remained basically without any real naval protection from them. This was in part because the Norman focus was not at sea. They were Europeans who had spent most of their careers fighting land wars, not naval battles. So while there were some notable events during this period. There was little that the Welsh Navy would be or could be able to accomplish. Under independence and the Gwyndir revival, they largely relied on other navies to assist them in protecting their shores, bringing in trade and mostly failing to stop English incursions. As time went on, places such as Milford Haven became ports for the English to launch invasions on their western neighbor, Ireland. After the conquest, Edward's castles then replaced the old Roman forts and did much the same in keeping positions of armed protection from both invasion by the sea and mustering forces to deal with issues on land. During the medieval period, Rutland received yet again a port, and the River Cloyd had canals created in part to help ship men and equipment around quickly in the area. Rivers and seas were as much and as important as Roman roads to medieval lords. Welsh mariners in the medieval period, at least those who did not want to serve in the English employ, could find jobs working for Scottish and French kings. Others simply held onto their ships against English usage to the point where they would demand to be paid in advance to fight in any wars in, against the Scots with Edward III, for example, in which they effectively uh, blackmailed him into paying them a bunch of money to be able to use their ships and their men. 
One of the first Welsh naval commanders in the Royal Navy was Sir Matthew Craddock from Swansea. He served in the Navy of Richard III as a privateer, in other words, an officially sanctioned pirate. As we enter the early modern period after the discovery of the Americas meant that having a fleet became much more a priority to Europe as well as England itself, this is reflected in all aspects of life and in all parts of the kingdom. The Elizabethan period sees the rise of the English Navy into the more commonly known now as Royal Navy of the later empire. The ships of the line carrying cannons left from all over the country, including Wales, manned by not a few Welshmen as well. As the Royal Navy began to expand under Henry VIII, more and more Welsh sailors and administrators began to take up positions in the fleet. One notable administrator was John Trevor of Trefallen, who was appointed Surveyor of the Navy, holding the office until 1611. He had started out as a secretary to Lord Howard of Effringham, the admiral who had led the fleet against the Spanish Armada, and it was Howard's influence that led to his appointment as surveyor. John was knighted in 1603, one of the many to receive the honor from King James I during his ascension. He would eventually find himself mired in serious corruption accusations, which has led to his reputation firmly being suspect ever since, and if he was corrupt, it was a pretty common problem for the Royal Navy during that period. Graft, corruption, selling of various titles, and shortchanging the government was a common function during this period, something that we see quite often in states where the administration of the military is not monitored correctly, there's no real oversight, and things get a little out of hand. During the war with Spain in the 17th century, Welsh seamen were in charge of not a few ships, both official navy ships and privately owned ones, that would take matters in their own hands, raiding various sides, looking to make a quick buck as they, in quotes, served the Royal Navy. Robert Mansell from Margab Abbey, Glamorgan, I apologize for that pronunciation, hopefully that's correct, but we'll see, uh, was one of the most effective. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 
at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. In 1591, Mansell, at the age of 20, was sailing under Lord Thomas Howell as they sailed to the Caribbean to be privateers. Again, as I mentioned earlier, basically pirates, but with government sanction. At some point shortly after, he was given command of his own ship and by 1596 had joined the the Earl of Essex, Robert Devereux, on an expedition to capture Cadiz. Because of their success, one of the major defeats of Spain during the war saw Mansell knighted for this service. Many profited handsomely as well, which would, of course, be a side effect when you ravage the port, which had been the arrival port for much of the wealth coming from the Americas. Mansell continued to serve under Essex as captain in the Navy. He would continue to terrorize Spanish fleets until the end of the war, and with the accession of James I, it actually provided a reason to end the war. And with the end of that, Mansell then turned to higher positions of serving as both the treasurer of the Navy and eventually would be promoted to the position of Vice Admiral of the Royal Navy. Thomas Button, on the other hand, of Worlington Glamorgan, would be another noted Welshman in the Royal Navy during this period. He served in 1601 during the Spanish War as in what appeared to be a rather corrupt example of the Royal Navy, an organization and administrative issue from the period, as I mentioned previously, and you'll kind of see why I mentioned this earlier. He said to have exploited his commands of these various ships to leave them undermanned and yet continue to claim a full roster so that he could profit from the pay that would normally go to a full roster of ships. He would then be bribed on occasion from pirates that were looking to escape from government prosecution. In one specifically famous case, he was given a couple of chests of sugar in exchange to be released, and apparently it was worth 42 pounds, was not an insignificant sum in the early part of the 17th century. In 1612, he led an expedition looking for the Northwest Passage in North America, but like many before and many after, would return home empty-handed. For all of his corruption, he continued to serve for over 30 years in the Navy, even when the financial benefits had long left for him, serving eventually as rear admiral. During the Civil War period, much of the Welsh served in the royalist side of both the Navy and the Army against the parliamentarians. Yet, even 
with that, some still served to protect the ports along the Welsh coast against the Royalists. This is something we'll talk about in further detail when discussing the English Civil War and the effects on Wales later in our story. But it is important to note that there were places, especially in the southern part of Wales, that were pro-parliamentarians, and there were some that were pro-royalist. With the return of the monarchy under Charles II, and then finally James II, Welsh gentry, who had been shut out of many of the positions in society in England, once again began to benefit in the Royal Navy. One of the most famous in that period was Arthur Herbert, son of Sir Edward Herbert. Of course, the Herberts are some a name that is very famous in Wales in both this time period and the past, as they were, of course, very famously problems for Glyndur and for Tudor. And they had been sort of that name for many, many years. Uh, now, the son of Edward Herbert, Arthur entered the Navy in 1663 and became a captain three years later in 1666 at about the age of 19. He distinguished himself during the Second and Third Dutch Wars in 1679 and because of that became the Admiral of the Fleet of the Mediterranean. One of his jobs and important positions was to deal with the pirates which were coming out of Algeria, known as the Algerian Corsairs. Herbert was considered to be competent and brave, but he was also described as arrogant, negatively outspoken, and remarkably immoral, even by the period's rather less lofty examples. Yet still, he kept the favor of the king during that entire period and continued to protect his position. In 1682, he secured the peace with Algiers, that endured for over a hundred years. Because of this achievement, he returned home a hero and became the first holder of the uh, honorific post of Rear Admiral of England. In 1687, Herbert finally saw a reason to split with the king over James's desire to remove legal fines against Catholics in England. Realizing that would create a financial problem for the government and likely as a good Protestant, wasn't enamored with the idea. He opposed him and then found himself, because of this, in exile back in Wales, no longer the court darling. Yet he would continue to live long enough that in that he was able to turn those circumstances on their head, as he then turned to the Dutch prince William of Orange for help. Again, these are details that we may go into later, but nonetheless, he was amongst those who delivered the letter from several prominent politicians that invited William to invade England and kick James out. He was then made commander of William's invasion fleet, which made landfall in Torbay on the 5th of November. James's flight and William's accession to the throne led to honors being showered on Herbert, Herbert was created First Lord of the Admiralty and Earl of Torrington. A major loss against the French in 1690, however, meant that he was held as the scapegoat in that defeat, and while never convicted via court-martial, it was suggested that the reason for that is because most of his peers in the Navy were actually people he had supported in those positions, so thus they were more loyal to him than they were the Crown. Uh, he nonetheless never went to sea again, mostly because... Let's be honest, the king wasn't fond of him at that stage. 
He was probably one of the most successful Welshmen in the Royal Navy up to that point in time and had accomplished quite a number of things which put him on the top level for any sort of achievement and certainly a far cry from where the Welsh were 200 years before that prior to the advent of the Tudors. At this point, I want to save the rest of this discussion for a later date where we can talk more in full and be sort of equivalent to talking about a period that is close to where we've covered or along that line. As well, it's such a massive topic with so many things that go on. And of course, you have to start to talk about the merchant navies and the trading that goes on through this period. And we have to talk about the coracle, for example. Uh, all of these things are very important to the Welsh in the maritime structures and in the things that they are doing in a period where massive advancements in the naval construction and in the concept of what a navy is, really, because over the succeeding years that come into the... Um, age of the Victorians, the British Navy will have changed starkly from where it's at at this point. It will become a much more professional organization and in fact will show how often the Royal Army is compared poorly to the Royal Navy. And of course, the influence of the Welsh on privateering and pirating and in settlement in other areas of the world, all are facilitated by this access to the sea. So these are things I want to go into in further detail in a later episode. You certainly can't cover it all in one, and I certainly wouldn't want to cheat you from having more detail and more linkages to things going on. You will notice, of course, this was a very male-oriented version of the story, and that's one thing I want to also address is more what's going on with others who aren't you know, the, the, the norm of what we think of as historical figures of this period, and that's something I want to cover as well. So with that all said and done, thank you for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or join our community on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Or if you're so inclined, you can help fund the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. I have been putting up uh, rough transcripts from the first 50 episodes up on the uh, the Patreon. So if you're interested in kind of reading the basis of what I'm doing, uh, I will admit these are the rough versions. So there's spelling mistakes, there's grammar mistakes, there's gaps in some of it where my own personal knowledge stretched beyond what I was talking about or I had information I was pulling out of books directly. So that kind of stuff I, I didn't log, shall we say. But as we've gone on later on, you'll notice that they become much more detailed and written out. Uh, but for now, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. Have yourselves a great day, and we'll talk to you again next time. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. 
The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.